we're going to be in Exodus, but we're going to be moving around a lot uh, today. Um, and uh, where we are in Exodus is uh, we're starting the, the, the Ten Plagues. And, and in some ways, the Ten Plagues are the most famous part of the Moses story. And, but they're difficult for us to get grasp because it's, this is one of the places where, where, where the Bible just starts to, starts to lean into science fiction. And, and, the, and the, the idea of these plagues is sort of amazing to us. It's, it's phenomenal what's happening. And, and it's really interesting what the, the writer of Exodus is doing because they're really setting up these plagues as a showdown is taking place. This is very clear from the way that, that this is framed. This is a story about, about gods in conflict happening right now. And we see this right off the top. So in Exodus chapter 7, verses 8 through 13, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, and this is God repeating the commands that he's given them uh, beforehand, which happens all the time in, in the Old Testament. Uh, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it on the ground before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. Now, remember... God also told, told Moses to do this at the burning bush. So this isn't a new thing. This is, a, okay, right, we do the snake trick, right? Okay, so good. So Moses and Aaron went off to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians, who also did the th same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Okay, so you, this is what we would call, the, this is literary foreshadowing. But what we're setting up here is this conflict, that a showdown is set up between the forces of Yahweh and the forces of Pharaoh. And they're going to, to, to be in conflict with each other over the uh, future of uh, the, the, the Israelites, okay? And, and it's interesting that this... Okay, so, uh, so what, what, uh, what Wi-Fi network are you on? In, our, our Wi-Fi just shuts off sometimes randomly in the middle of things, and then that, uh, that makes things complicated. So, uh, so here we are. So, so we're now at a, a showdown between the forces of Yahweh and the forces of Pharaoh. And and it's interesting the guy to set up this whole trick, which is is supposed, which in my mind the way things are set up is like, ah, you're going to throw down the staff, it's going to turn into a snake, everything's good. But this is a surprise for us as the reader, must have been a surprise for Aaron and Moses as well, that they're able to do the exact same thing with, with uh, their staff. And, and this staff thing is interesting, I want to spend a little bit of time here for a couple of reasons. First of all, could everyone do this at the time? Was this just everyone could do this with it? This is just a common trick that everyone does with their staffs uh, at the time? Um, but I think that there's a more important thing that's going on here, and I want to ask this question honestly, and I want you to answer it. This is not a rhetorical question, but I want you to answer it in your own mind. Uh, I want you to literally answer it. 
Was God surprised by the Egyptians being able to turn their staffs into, staffs into snakes as well? No. Right, okay, so we agree with that. And I think that this is incredibly important because it would have been very easy at this point in time for Moses and Aaron to see this thing that they weren't expecting. That, that these forces of evil are able to do the exact same thing and have the exact same power that, that God has and, and be surprised by it and be dismayed by it. And I think as much as we all easily jump to, of course God wasn't surprised by that, when we see the same thing happen in our own lives, that we are doing what God has called us to do and we face opposition, we face uh, opposing forces, we pay, uh, face... Uh, distress of any kind, that we act as if God is surprised. When we face opposition or attack or difficulty or defeat, we ask as if God is surprised. But deep down, we know that God is not surprised. And we see this all the time, and I see Christians in our culture all the time act as if God is surprised by some sort of piece of legislation that someone puts forward, or some sort of uh, um, lie or misstatement that someone makes about the Christian church. They act as if God is surprised or dismayed by any of those things, and that's just simply not true. God is not surprised by any form of opposition that we're going to face. And the reason why that's incredibly important is because... <coughs> Excuse me. We as followers of Jesus need to act as if God is not surprised. We need to remind ourselves that God is still sovereign even when not everything goes particularly well. But as we see that, uh, that Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, and we would also call that foreshadowing. But then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Presumably it was changed back again. Uh, I don't know if it's bigger because it had eaten the other staffs. I don't know how that works. Um, these are details, like, there's, a, there's an 11-year-old boy inside me that wants the details to all of these things. And that's just going to be the, the seminar that I go in when it gets to heaven. It's just like random Bible story details. I'm going to be... They're going to be hanging, up there, hanging around there for a few thousand years. So, but, uh, so, taking your hand, the staff was changed into a snake, and then saying to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go, so that they, they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says, and by this you will know I am the Lord. But the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. And the fish of the Nile will die, and the river will stink. And the Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. So, this is interesting that, that the first plague, and this is about to set up ten plagues, but the first plague is this, this opposition that God has that, that God has and Moses has against the life force of the Egyptian nation. The Nile was incredibly important for their economic power, for their for for all of, for transportation, for environmental issues. Everything about them was because of the Nile. So to affect the Nile was an, a direct attack on Egypt itself. Itself, and in fact, what we see as we go through here is that all of these plagues are direct attacks on gods in the Egyptian pantheon. Okay, so. This is unfortunately smaller than I thought it was, but I will read it to you. So, the first plague, the Nile turns to blood. Well, that is a direct attack on Happy, who is the god of the Nile. 
Okay, so there was a God who was in charge of the Nile. So, the, so they they're like, who is this Yahweh that you're going to go worship? We have no attention to him. And now Yahweh goes out and says, well, I'm going to take I'm going to take happy stuff and I'm going to ruin it. In addition to the environmental transportation, uh, just the the, the 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 inconvenience of having the Nile turn to blood, the, the the psychological shock of that. There also would have been this idea that, like, wait a minute, this God that we thought was all-powerful in control of the Nile that made it rise, that made it fall, that made our crops grow, that, that we would sacrifice to, this God is nothing in the face of this Yahweh. Nile turns into blood. The plague of frogs is the same thing. It was, it was a direct attack on Heket, the god of fertility. God of fertility was often, was often manifested as a frog, and, and this over-proliferation of frogs coming over the entire land was a direct attack saying, Yahweh is in charge of this too. Yahweh can give you so much of this that you become sick of it. Same with lice. Lice were considered, or, or gnats as some of them, they were born in, in the dust of the earth. Well, well, Geb was the god of the earth, not the planet, but dirt. And so, Geb, so for this, for this, uh, these gnats these and lice to be rising out of the, the, the dust was a direct attack on Geb. The god said, no, uh, Geb is under his control as well. Flies against Kepri, the god of rebirth, rebirth often uh, demonstrated as having the head of a scarab beetle. Uh, the death of cattle was a direct attack on Hathor, the goddess of protection, often manifested in the form of a, 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 of a cow, but also uh, in charge of, of livestock. That's who they would uh, um, uh, sacrifice to. The attack of boils or open sores. It's an attack on Isis, the goddess of peace and healing. Whenever they invoked any kind of, of medical activity, they would pray to, to Isis. Well, Isis is now defeated and in control of... Yahweh, hail uh, falling is a, a direct attack on Nut, the goddess of the sky. Locusts, uh, an attack on Seth, who's the god of storms and disorder. Um, I just find the fact that this god is named Seth is just funny to me. Sorry. <laughs> when I imagine a Seth in my head, it's a guy who's wearing a golf shirt uh, buttoned all the way to the top. Um, and then. The plague of darkness is a direct attack on Ra, the god of the sun. So uh, after Pharaoh, Ra was the second greatest god in the Egyptian pantheon. So when, if, if Yahweh could just block out the sky and say that that god that you worship doesn't no, it no longer has any power, it's incredibly affecting the people of Egypt. In the same way, Pharaoh was treated as a god. To have the, son, the firstborn son of Pharaoh destroyed, it means that the God who they expected to be able to defend even their own son is incapable of doing that. That all of these gods are weaker than and under the power of the God of the Israelites, Yahweh. Now, there's this real tension that happens in Scripture because... Uh, with idols and other gods, Scripture often treats them as if they're nothing and they ought to be ignored. Okay? That's one way that, that the Bible treats idols and different gods. There's another way that the Bible sometimes treats idols and different gods, which is that they are to be opposed and under the power of, of the God Almighty Creator of heaven and earth. And there's this tension where is this not a thing? Is this no thing? Or is this a thing that is under God's control? And I think... This is something that we ought to pay attention to ourselves because this gods in conflict idea is, is a real thing that the people of God have gone back to over and over again. One of, it's not just in Egypt. It happens 
later on as well. This is one of my favorite stories of gods in conflict in the Old Testament. And it's the story of the Ark of the Covenant and Dagon. So uh, the Israelites have this Ark of the Covenant. It's in their temple. It's their, it's their holy It's in their tabernacle. It's a holy thing. When God allows them to be crushed by their enemies, the Philistines, the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant with them, which was very common. You would plunder your enemies. You take their stuff. So they take it and they take it back to the temple of Dagon. And after the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, and then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. Dagon was a Philistine god. So this is a, a, a way of saying that, look, the god of the Israelites, Yahweh, this is his box. It has now been defeated, and he is now subject to Dagon. That was what they were expecting when they came and put it into Dagon's temple. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So you want to imagine a giant stone statue that when they left it the night before, it was standing upright. And then when they come back the next morning, it has now fallen, but not just fallen down, but fallen down and turned so that it is face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. And this is why today neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. And there's, this story continues because basically uh, they, they set up Dagon and he falls again. They tell the story in Kings. He said they set up Dagon the second time and then he falls again. What's that? Okay, yeah. Sorry, um, but they uh, so they have this so they have this whole thing with Dagon, and then they and then they start to get like sick. Everybody in the town starts getting sick, so they're like, we need to get rid of the Ark of the Covenant. So they go and they take it to another Philistine town, and they're like, here, you guys have the we just brought this Ark by, and then those people are like, oh, this is okay, I guess we have this nice shiny gold box, and then they all get sick, and then they try and take it to the next town. The next Philistine town, and the, at that point, the Philistine, uh, the people in that Philistine town are like, no, 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 we heard about this box, get rid of it, we don't know. They like, basically when they go to bring them the Ark of the Covenant, they're standing there with arms being like, no, take it away. And then, so finally, the, 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 the people who are trying to handle the Ark go back to their own people, and they're like, so what do we do to get rid of this Ark? And they're like, take it back to the Israelites. And they're like, but make sure you take a gift as well. So they end up taking the Ark of the Covenant back with like a whole bunch of gold and livestock. And they're like, here, please take your box back. We, we don't want it anymore. And there's this, so there's all these stories about gods in conflict that, they, that God meets his people. And he is greater than any of the gods they will encounter. And that we can trust in his power and might. And what we see in this Old Testament story is a is that God is willing to confront the things in their world that are opposing and oppressing them. That God is willing to meet people exactly where they are, dealing with the issues that they have to face. The Israelites under Egypt were asking themselves the question, well, we're supposed to go into the desert to worship this God. Is this God more powerful than the gods who are here? And God is demonstrating to them, yes, yes, he is. People of Israel, when they were confronted with the Philistines and beaten by them, they said, okay, is this because we've sinned? Or is it the fact that our God has been defeated by the God of the Philistines, Dagon? And, 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 and Yahweh says, no, that's not the case at all. I allowed you to be beaten. I'm never beaten. And I am going to be brought back to you 
in this way. There is God is constantly willing to meet his people and confront the gods that they are dealing with, those things that are oppressing and opposing them, and he is willing to defeat and destroy them. Now, we in our day and age do not have gods in the same way, right? If I were to ask someone, what is the God that you worship? No one is going to come to me and bring a statue from their house and say, this is the God that we worship. We don't have idols in the same way. But the reality is, the, the New Testament is still quite clear that when we go out into this world, we are in conflict with things that are beyond us. This is Ephesians 6, where Paul says, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that to finally be strong in the Lord and His mighty power, put on the full armor of God, so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. But there are things greater than we can understand. There are things beyond what are tangible to us, and these are the things that we are in conflict with. There are forces in this world that are beyond our control and comprehension, and they do not follow a typical human pattern. And I think that one of the most dangerous things that we do as followers of Jesus is to assume that when we walk out into this world, we are not in conflict with anything other than the people in front of us, and that we do not have the power of anything beyond what we can see and hold in our hands as well. There are far too many Christians and far too many churches that have diminished the role of the Spirit in their lives and in their, and in their churches to the point where they are functionally atheists that we never ask for anything that we can't manufacture with our own hands, that we, never, that we never deal with anything that we cannot see and measure in the same way that medicine is measured, and we, and we do not rely on a power beyond what we can garner from our own education and economic resources. We, we, there are so many churches in this city around in North America that are functionally atheists that show up on Sunday and sing the songs and read the verses and do the things and never expect that God is actually going to intervene in his own might and power. That's a dangerous place to be because not only does it rob us of the power that is in the Holy Spirit that has been given to us to have authority over all things in heaven and earth, we ignore the fact that our ba battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against other people, but it's against spirits and forces in the heavenly realms, things that are above us and beyond us. And I want us to acknowledge that, that we are in conflict with the gods of this age. And we can brainstorm about what the gods of this age are called, but the reality is there, is, there are things that are in this world that are beyond our, our, our scope and our control, and we are called to engage with them. But even in the midst of acknowledging not right now. Even in the midst of acknowledging that, that these powers exist, we ought to, we are called in the midst of this to strength and to courage. Because we see here as Paul's talking about the exact same thing, he's talking about preaching the gospel. If our gospel is veiled and is veiled to those who are perishing, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine in darkness, made his light shine in our hearts, because the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. As we are in conflict with the God of this age, 
The God of this age who has made people think that money is more important than, than people. The God of this age who has made people think that, that being admired and famous is going to somehow give them security and comfort. The God of this age who makes us afraid of our neighbor and unwilling to go and love our neighbor as God has called us to. That the God of this age is continually blinding people. But our fight against the uh, God of this age is to repeat the message of the gospel over and over again. To bravely communicate that reality that Jesus has come, that Jesus is living in and amongst us. The God of this age, and we can call it money, business, usefulness, desire to be noticed and admired and envied. But in the face of this God, the God of this age, we preach Christ crucified. And we continue to proclaim the message that the kingdom of heaven is near because of what God has done. We do not shrink back from the God of this age. And we do not shrink back and say that our wisdom is, is to be held over in this corner. We boldly go forth and in the face of this, preach Christ crucified again and again and again. We call ourselves to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We call our, on ourselves to love our neighbors as ourselves. We expect and experience this transformation. Because this is the reality that we deal with. Even though there is a God of this age that has blinded the minds of unbelievers, even though we face opposition in heavenly realms, even though we face any number of, of things that are distracting us and trying to pull us away from the one true God, we have been given all authority in heaven and earth. And this is the mission that we've been given in spite of this, that, that Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, therefore... Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That, that in the midst of this conflict, even as we watch God in conflict with the other gods, we still acknowledge that the power that we have over this is is sealed in Jesus and what he has done. And that is no clearer than at this table. Because Jesus at when he when Jesus went to the cross, he confronted the gods of his age. He confronted the power of the Roman Empire. He confronted the power of a religious elite that, that demanded the allegiance of the people and gave them nothing nothing back to them. He came he, he confronted the power of death and of sin, and he came, was resurrected victorious on the other side of that. So as we come to this table, I would ask you to think about what victory are you seeking at this table that Jesus has already won? What God of this age are you confronting, be it anxiety, be it economic uh, uh, uncertainty, be it be it any kind of hatred or fear, be it, be it any kind of distraction, what are you seeking this victory over that Jesus has already won and defeated in his sacrifice for us on the cross? Because the reality, as much as the gods are in conflict and as much as Yahweh had victory over the gods of Egypt, Jesus has won victory over the gods of this age as well. So let's take a moment in prayer as we, before we come to this table.